You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking to Jacob Konka, a programmer who works full-time for the Zig Language Foundation on improving the Zig programming language. We talk about the low-level systems programming involved in Jacob's work on Zig and other projects, including things like disassembling binaries, hot code loading in a systems language, writing a linker from scratch, and testing machine code without access to the actual hardware or even an emulator. And now, linking and binary hot code loading. All right, Jacob, thanks for joining me. Hi, hello. So yeah, we were just talking how you're the only person I know who is actually basically full-time, if, if I'm not mistaken, working on making a from-scratch standalone linker. Is that right? Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not <laughs> the only person. Um, I don't okay, the only know. person I know. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, you, so you probably didn't have a chance to meet the great engineer Rui Uyama, who's uh, working on Mold. Um, I have not met Rui, no. Yeah, so that would be very cool. Pretty funny because he started working on Mold round about the same time when I started working on the Maco linker, I think. Mm. It's just that you know, we, we had different purposes. But yeah, so uh, nowadays I'm working on a generic linker, but basically I started working on the incremental linker for Zig. And that's a bit mm -hmm. more specific than purely generic purpose because it's specifically tailored to how the compiler is structured and it's very tightly coupled. With. Right. So this is more familiar to me. Like this is what we're doing in rock is like, exactly. And actually, maybe we should back up because I don't want to assume that everybody who's listening is right. familiar with linkers. Good point. So do you want to talk about the incremental linker and kind of what was the motivation there? And maybe we can get into like how that led to the more, you know, general purpose linker. Sure. So in, in general, when it comes to linking, um, how you normally link things is you always have to redo the entire thing from scratch. So you get your intermediate object file. So this is the, the thing that the compiler is spitting out called translation units, and then the linker takes them into, basically like splices them into one thing. And every single rerun, even though your compiler might be incremental, you still have to relink everything from scratch. And these right? are things like, like libraries, right? So like, let's say you have, like you're using like three different C libraries and they come in the form of like binary objects that are not directly executable on their own, or at least they're not like marked that way, but you're trying to make an executable which incorporates those three. The linker can sort of package them all together. It's kind of like if I were to use a JavaScript equivalent, it's kind of like a Webpack type thing where it's combining several different things into one final compiled artifact, except instead of the compiled artifact being a .js file, it's a binary executable. And instead of the source files being like source code, they're actually also, the, <laughs> the inputs are exactly. also binaries. Yeah. 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 So the, the linker knows what the target system is. It knows what the magic routine is so that the operating system can actually load it and run it, right? So that's the traditional view for the linker. Now, it's pretty slow, especially if you get some, if you have to link something back. Obviously, with Mold, Rui is like breaking new ground. Like it's, it's becoming super fast to even link Chrome, which is huge. Yeah. Right. So, and so I think he does that. that. He does that with uh, like parallelism, right? Like yeah, he has, yeah, like, yeah Mold is super our, parallel as a linker. Those, I think yeah. it's more than just this. It's parallelism plus he knows exactly how to fit different bits and pieces so that actually it makes sense and it doesn't break. Right. Just for the record, Rui is the original author of LD plus... Uh, um, was, wait, is it L LDD? No, L LD. The one for L from LLVM. He's the original author of this. So he did it when he was working for Google. Right. So there's LD, which is the one that ships with Unix systems, right? So macOS and Linux have a program called LD. Yeah, but that's different on macOS and on Linux. On Linux, that's GNU LD, as far as I remember, the default one. And the one on macOS is the one made by Apple, also dubbed LD64. Right. Right. So the GNU one, I think, is, is called Gold, maybe. Like a lot of linkers have LD and then like there's like a pun around it. So like gold yeah. and mold and... <laughs> gold. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Zed, yeah. I called it ZLD for Zig and uh, it was a big mistake. I had no idea, but the name was taken. I didn't revert it. I was like, nobody cares. But uh, <laughs> there is a fork of Apple LD, LD64 called ZLD, which is meant to be faster. Oh, I didn't uh, know Some that. people use it. Not many people do, but I had no idea. It was just, or, uh, you know, by chance. But anyway. Right. So or or as, I, as an American would say, it's ZLD. But right, I, right. Yeah. <laughs> is there, um, by the way, just a small tangent. Yeah. Is there like a split in the Zig community? Because a lot of Zig libraries like start or projects like have Zs in them. Do people say like, does one group say Z and another group says Z? Like depending on where they're from in the world or like, how does that go? I have no idea, actually. I, oh, I never, interesting. I, I never <laughs> thought about this. I need to listen. Like, I, I think Andrew says Z. I usually say Z, but. Okay. Okay. 
I never paid attention to it, to be honest. Because I know in the Scala community, there's a famous library, which I've only ever heard of it uh-huh. referred to as Scala Z, but it's spelled, you know, Scala followed by what I would say is Z. And I've only ever heard people say Scala Z, including Americans, which is interesting to me. I, I wonder like how that, I don't know, so t- took hold. Because before I'd heard anyone pronounce it, I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's either Scala Z or Scala Z. But I wasn't sure which. And it, I was very surprised to hear everyone pronounce it Scala Z. So, I don't know. Maybe that's uh, yeah. Something. I need to like I need to pay more attention. I think. <laughs> okay. Like, anyway, um, that's just a totally unrelated tangent to Lakers. <laughs> yeah, but it's a good tangent though, right? So we have ZLD, and that's the traditional stuff. And then my first ever attempt at writing anything remotely like a linker was back in I think 2020, six months into the Zig project by myself. And I just asked Andrew, like, is there anything I can do for the stage two compiler? So stage two compiler, for those who don't know much about Zig, is the one that has got native backends implemented by us. So we're not relying on LLVM. We will be relying on our own code generation. Um, so you go straight from like zig source file to you know type checking and all that good stuff and comp time and then you go straight to machine code there's no like intermediate library that you're relying on exactly yeah yeah, yeah. we go like we go source like you know ast that obviously then we go to semantic analysis we lower that into our own intermediate presentation then we take all this stuff we basically well we don't do any optimization passes yet but that that's the plan at some point and then we link you know we output machine code and then we link everything together by everything is basically done by Zig. There's no yeah. LVM use, nothing like this. That's the, that's the plan. Now, I, I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask anyway. Why not just use LLVM for that? And why not just use like the system linker that everyone's got? Why go to all the trouble of writing your own, compile directly to machine code and write your own linker? Why bother? <laughs> well, see, that's uh, if you asked me this question a couple of years back, I would say, yeah, yeah, that's, that's absolutely pointless. We should never do that. We should actually go with the system linker <laughs> and... And LVM. But I started to really appreciate the fact that if you have everything in house, and especially for something that's a compiler where you want to control pretty much every single knob that you can get your hands on, it's very good to have everything, like, as I said, written by yourself. With LVM, we had every single release, and I don't mean anything bad by it for the LVM, LVM folks. I think they're doing a great job, but every release, we have lots of regressions. And, you know, we have to track them down. We have to then submit bug reports. And then we have now, to hope now you they're going to be fixed. Like LLVM has regressions, which you find. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's not it's not like LLVM is like uncovering. New LLVM releases are uncovering ZIG regressions. It's or, or causing them. Yeah, it's the other opposite than way like, around. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this is limiting for us because, you know, we care about our users. And then how do we present that to the user? I'm sorry, there is a regression. We can't really do much about this because this is in a third party project. Like we can obviously push for it. We can try submit a patch, but it's not exactly what we want to do. So that's one thing. Then the other one about system linkers. Well, they are, uh, normal linking is kind of slow. Obviously, mold is proving us wrong here, but it's it's slow. And Andrew had this brilliant idea of utilizing a thing called incremental linking. Like, actually, people refer to it as an in-place binary patching. So instead of taking translation units, like object files, and then relinking every single time, we update things on the fly. So if a declaration, like a symbol changes, we're just going to update that one without touching anything else. And with this, the idea is that because it's going to be very, very atomic in nature, it's going to be much faster. So we won't have to, uh, you know, basically we're going to like, I don't know, like half, maybe even like, like the the time required to do an iteration. Yeah. So, so this is, this is really cool. So this is basically like, I guess to go back to the Webpack analogy, it's as if you had a mode in Webpack that said, I'm not going to regenerate an entire new compiled JavaScript file from scratch. Rather, I know which one I generated previously, and I know what you changed in your source code files. So I'm just going to go into that previously, you know, outputted thing that I did and just update the stuff that you changed in, exactly. in that. Yeah, Absolutely. but at a binary level. Yeah. Um, so th- the trick here, and you probably know this from Rock as well, is that the fact that in order to do this, we need to tightly couple the things. So normally right. linker is a standalone binary, right? Normally, uh, the way it's invoked, it's uh, compiler is the, the first program that does loading into machine code and translation units. And then the linker takes that as an input and then creates the final linked image, like a shared object or a binary. But in this case, we don't have any intermediate files. We do everything 
Like we, we go straight from source, as you said, to the final linked image, and then we update in place within the final linked image. So the negative of this approach is the fact that they can't, like, like they're tightly coupled. So we can't really plug and play. That doesn't really work. Like they're way too specific for our use case. We can't just take out a linker, put something else in because it's not going to work. Right. Whereas when you have like two separate programs, that can be done, right? That's why you can swap in mold for Apple LD or or for LLD and see if it speeds things up. Right. It seems like there's a lot of, <laughs> like there's this API or like the design for the command line interface of, I don't know which one was the original one now. I mean, maybe it's it's been so long that it was something really obscure that nobody uses anymore. But for whatever reason, yeah, whenever anyone makes a new standalone linker, they pretty much always make it a drop-in replacement for one of those old ones, including the yeah. flags, you know, as, as much as possible. It's funny you mentioned like, you know, mold being really fast. We actually tried it out on the rock code basic for the right. compiler, and it actually wasn't significantly faster than interesting um, than LLD. Yeah, for us, like I, mean, I think it was like maybe a little bit, but it, it was not even like worthwhile to switch it over on CI because it was such a small difference. That's very um, interesting. You know, it, it might be because Rui specifically is designing mold for C plus plus and Rust code bases, or rather C plus plus code bases mainly. Uh, I yeah. guess Rust. But then again, Rock is written in Rust, so I would expect. It is. Yeah. It should be fast. Maybe I, I don't know enough, but definitely for C and C has got lots of quirks. The linker actually linking C involved like is fairly involved for C There is like a lot of I'm, I'm sorry for saying this junk that the linker has to do, has to do like has to handle for the program to be properly linked. So. Yeah, so it, it might be that like the percentage improvement for a C++ code base is a lot more noticeable than it is for a Rust code base. That's entirely possible. Yeah. But when we compare it to like the surgical linker that we've written in Rock, for like local linking, you know, comparing like system linker to that, it's like linking goes from being a very significant part of compile times to just a total rounding error. It doesn't even show up on the flame graph. Yeah. And we have the same thing actually with the Mako, Elf, and Cough incremental linkers for what we currently do, which isn't much, but it's like instantaneous. When it comes to like right. <laughs> uh, running the behavior tests, you don't even see linking done at all. It goes through like semantic analysis and boom, done, already get the results. <laughs> right. So, and you know, with LVM, we get semantic analysis and LVM pops up going like, you know, emitting objects and then the linker, which is still pretty fast, but you can see the flushing done. So, so yeah, it's going to be very exciting for, I think for Rock and Zig when it's um, advanced enough to be able to like build itself with the linking and, and like the code gen and linking. We should then start like observing some really exciting speedups that I'm really looking forward to. So, yeah. Yeah, we're also in a place with Rock where the, the surgical linker, it, it works on Linux and is the default. We actually have a command line flag where you mm -hmm. can opt back into the legacy linker, as we call it, which is like the system linker. Right. But there's very few projects that do that. I think the only one that I can think of that's actually using the legacy linker is like a Raspberry Pi thing. And there's some weird thing on there where like the surgical linker doesn't work with it right yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what we don't have yet is a fully working Mac OS surgical linker implementation. Um, we actually have it on Windows uh, now, uh, but not enough people are using Windows for rock development to really have say it's battle tested in any sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But for macOS, that's like the last one. And of course, that's probably the most popular one that, you know, most people are, I would imagine, using macOS for rock. And to say the least, that's been a lot harder than Linux or Windows. So you mentioned like Mako, Cough, and uh, Elf. Elf. So yeah. for those who don't know, Mako, or it, it looks like it's spelled Macho, <laughs> which that's, is funny. That, yeah, but, yeah, and that, that's exactly how Andrew pronounces it. And yeah. I probably shouldn't say that on air because I, I it was kind of silly. But I got a nickname because of the fact that I started working on the Mako linker first. Uh -huh. I got a nickname, Macho Man. And honestly, Andrew <laughs> still refers to me like this sometimes. <laughs> I actually have a handle like this. At Zig, so I'm actually at, we didn't mention this, but I'm employed by Zig Software Foundation to work full time right. on Zig, and I do have an email address, obviously, with at ziglang.org. But I've got two: ah. I've got Jacob at ziglang.org, and I also have a nickname, you know, the alias one, Macho Man at ziglang.org, <laughs> which is pretty funny. I don't use it, by the way. <laughs> if you write to it, I will reply. So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. But yeah, so from the perspective of like, how do these things differ by operating system? The way that they differ is that macOS has its own format for binaries mm -hmm. uh, called 
Mako or Macho, yep. whatever, M-A-C-H-O. Uh, and then on Windows, it's Cough, although apparently also P-E. I'm not sure. It's like I often see it referred to as P-E slash Cough. Yeah, so, C-O-F-F. so Cough is, uh, Cough stands for Common Object File Format and actually predates Windows. It's been used by early Unixes as well. I think there used to be X-Cough, which is extended Cough. Uh, and P-E hmm. is, so basically Windows uses Cough for object files. So these are the intermediate files that are being being spat out by by the compiler that then the linker mm-hmm. takes and merges together into final linked image, and the final linked image is called PE, which is portable executable. Oh, okay, got it. So once yeah. it's in executable form, then it's PE. Otherwise, yeah. but before then, it's cough. Okay, Correct. that makes yeah. sense. So PE embeds cough inside as well. You have two headers. This is oh, okay. actually no. I'm sorry. You have three headers on Windows. You got the MS DOS header, which is pretty hilarious that you still have it. Actually, this is a fun fact. No linker, as far as I know, generates uh, MS-DOS stub by themselves. Everybody injects binary blob and honestly, like just binary blob as a header. And then you just update the, um, uh, I think it's like a four bytes offset and that's it to where the P header starts. Honestly, that's it. Because it's so old, like nobody actually runs MS-DOS anymore. Right. But it's there for uh, like, you know, legacy reasons. And then you have the P header and then you have the cough header or the other way around. But basically, the three headers are there for the, the linked image on, on Windows. Got it. Okay, and then, and then of course, Linux has ELF, and then and I, I, I believe that's where the dwarf debugging format comes for, is just a pun on ELF being the... I think so. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so ELF and, and COF, actually a lot of similarities, as it turns out, like as, as formats, at least compared to uh, Mako, which is totally in its own, doing oh. its own totally different thing. Uh, you know what? I think if you go back in time when it comes to macro format, there were more similarities with Elf than there are now. And oh. but, and this is mainly because of the dynamic linker. Um, Apple has been putting a lot of effort in making sure that loading binaries on macOS is getting faster and faster. So things have been well, basically written. Like you, you can still, I think, as far as I know, you can still create an old macro file format. For example, I'm pretty sure Rock is doing this as well, like as we are, that you're um, generating the so-called uh, DYLD info. So that's the, the info, like the, the opcodes for the loader. What to rebase? What to bind? What to lazy bind? Things like this. What to export? With the latest LD64, there is no DYLD info anymore. They huh. have went in, into uh, different uh, shorthand formats with fixed up chains and things like this. But if you go back, the way it's been done, it was on actual pointers and actual relocation information, which is exactly how it's done for ELF and how it's done for COF for when it comes to imports. Interesting. So you could go back, and as far as I know, the loader will still load it, but it's going to be the slowest binary when it comes to running, like the, the, the initial like spin up. Whereas if you create the binary that's using the fixed up chains, it's going to be loaded fastest. So, you know, gotcha. I've been trying really hard to optimize how fast you load the binaries. So. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so the thing that I was actually talking about was more how Mako is sort of more of a like state machine and you get these like actions that it's like, okay, I want you to do this thing next and do this thing next and do this thing next. Yeah. Whereas the other two formats are a lot more declarative. You just have like, okay, this information is at this offset and this information is at this offset and that's it. You don't need to, rec- you know. But that's what I mean. It, in the past, it used to be like this. Yeah, I see. And nowadays, yeah, you're right. Like in the the, the middle ground is that there, there, there's like a state machine for the DYLD opcodes. But with the fixed app chains, it's even worse because then you have only offsets. It's like function starts load command in Mako, basically, instead of encoding the pointer where something is, you encode a difference compared to the previous offset. Right. So like a pairwise yeah. difference, you know, like you, you start with a fixed offset to a section or a segment, and then you do a difference from that offset to the next one and then to the next one. So you Right. So as you're going, difference. you have to remember what you've done so far, exactly. because otherwise yeah, yeah. you can't get the right answer. <laughs> so this is cool for the loader as far as I know, it's going to make it faster, sure. But it makes linking slower because yeah. the linker has to, you know, go, go like, do this another run of actually compressing all this stuff. Well, so something that we do in the rock surgical linker is we actually store some of the, like we pre-compute some things and, and sort of cache them basically. Like we'll store yeah. them in this little metadata file. That's like, so we don't have to redo everything, you know, when we and come back that's, through. That's, that's very cool. That's very smart. We have the same plan for, um, for Zig, for the incremental linkers that, uh, well, it, 
we'll see how it goes. But uh, the idea is that um, we will be reloading. If, if you basically do the YAM incremental build and then you basically just say like, okay, I'm done for now. Yeah. Just exit the incremental build mode of the compiler. When you rerun it again, the idea is that we are going to load the binary as it was created and we're going to deserialize information to then have the graph ready so that you don't have to redo everything again. So you're going to start where you left off. Nice. Kind of like the metadata file. We might actually go with the metadata file still. I'm not convinced if it's going to work on Marco or not, because I've been doing some serious hacks to support incremental linking as we are doing it right now. So the idea is that for incremental linking, I want to have a section per segment. And now for those who are not aware with ELF, it's very easy. And segment basically describes, segment usually has a couple of sections and then each section can have a different type of data, but usually they're characterized by the same attributes like what the segment describes. It's like, for example, execute and read for uh, machine code, but you can have sections with different type of machine code, or you could have a constant, which would be only read only segment, and then you have different sections. So when it comes yeah, to incremental linking, because I want to move things around without touching virtual memory, I want to have one section per segment with ELF. That easy. Honestly, it's like Elf was made for this. It's like, it's so easy. It just works. Yeah. For Cough, actually for Cough, uh, believe it or not, it actually also, okay, Cough is a bit uh, finicky about things, but it generally works. Mako, uh, okay, not so simple. Like, <laughs> Mac, like, like Apple, I don't think they ever wanted to do that. So they never wanted to have more than one segment of a type. So in, and this is, um, this was a very interesting discovery by me was the fact that naming the segment, how you call the segments actually matters. Really? Yes. You can only have one text segment. If you have more than one, the loader will refuse to load this because right. they base the entire loading on the fact that there is one text segment which then they use as the base to compute all the offsets for like uh, sliding and things like this, as far as I understand. That's so really I annoying. Have a hack. <laughs> I, I use text and then I use text one, text two, text three, <laughs> honestly. And, this is, and I have data const one, data const two. They, and I've got all those funky names just so that it works. Okay, but, so uh, so the names are different, but the the types are still the so you can have yeah, multiple. Yeah, attributes yeah, attributes are the same. They they behave the same way. It should never make <laughs> any difference whatsoever, right? It's like it doesn't matter. Right. So somewhere um, Apple has some code that is looking for a hard coded name string. Yeah. That is the name text, and although the format allows you to have multiple things with that same name, in practice you will have a bad time if you do that. Absolutely, and and I mean <laughs> that's my understanding. I I, yeah. I couldn't make it work with well, the because, same names, so. Right, and you've had to do some of this experimentally because the documentation for how these formats work or, or how Mako works, I guess, is uh, either some combination of out of date or doesn't exist, right? <laughs> yeah, mainly the latter. Uh, the things that do exist are for PowerPC and early Intel, yeah. And, and I think if I remember right, like at some point you managed to talk to some folks who work at Apple on mm -hmm. these low level things and they yeah, didn't know either. Times. They're like, they're like, nobody knows. Nobody, even the people yeah, who work here so, don't know. So they, they were pretty <laughs> honest about this. And they said that, yeah, everybody, like, the way I've done it, the way everybody has done it, that's how you do it. And I was like, well, you know, fair enough. Although having some kind of a guide would go a long way because at least I would know where to start. Right. So, but so, I mean, that's, there's, I mean, just a brief tangent. It is a little bit wild that like, even at a company as big as Apple that makes operating systems, that makes one of the most successful operating systems in history the people who work there don't know how this part of their own software works. It's just, it's, it's lost to time. Like the people who originally wrote it either didn't document it well enough or the documentation was lost somehow and they don't work here anymore. And so now just literally nobody knows. And so they're in the position of reverse engineering their own software that they ship to millions of users because they don't know how it works. And if they need to change it, they need to back into it just as if it was somebody who didn't work at Apple at all was trying to figure out how it worked. You know, it's a, yeah, to be honest, I think it happens at every major company, I would say. It's just, <laughs> I think the churn is so big that, but you're right. It's like oh, a, it's a enough, fundamental but... thing. There should be some things. I'm pretty sure they have some things, but it's probably like um, fragmented so much. And as you said, like, I, I think actually Apple has got one of the best, they're very good at retaining employees. So I think 
people who actually did a lot of the early stuff are still there, which is awesome, right? They can actually mentor you and doing all this stuff, which is, which is great, but there's no docs. Like I, I would expect that <laughs> so that yeah. others could actually do something about well, this stuff. But, but then know, again, I, I, I don't know. I mean, Apple in particular, uh, unlike I would say, well, certainly unlike Linux, I don't actually don't know what, how Microsoft is on these things, but I mean, in general, Apple seems to not, shall we say, be super receptive to the idea of other people writing software like builds executables and stuff like that on Mac. doesn't seem to be their yeah, favorite I don't think thing. they like that. That's, that's true. Um, I think, I guess it's a fact, right? Because they want you to use Xcode yep. um, pretty much most of the time or their own version of Clang and, and, and things. Um, whereas uh, we decided at Zig that, no, we don't want that. Like the dream, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm working towards this and I'm, I am going to make it happen with the contributors and Andrew and, and the rest of ZSF folks is that, when you get a new Mac, uh, you know, normally what you do, you install uh, the so-called CLT command line tools or you install Xcode. Yep. You will have the third option of installing Zig and that's it. Like, honestly, that's going to be enough for you to actually build uh, the compile C, C++, Objective-C uh, on a Mac OS just with Zig. You won't, you won't need anything else. It's possible. I know for a fact that this because I already tried it. Obviously, not everything, but but they tried it and it works. It's you don't need anything like like the CLT and and and. So what what are the missing pieces? Like what what do most people who are using you know Clang or whatever to do their C and C plus plus projects or Zig? What are they missing that they need to have those Xcode tools installed that you're working on developing outside of them? So first of all, libc headers. Okay. In order to get them, you need to install either CLT or, or Xcode. You can actually download them yourself, but that's work. Then you have to configure yeah. Clang to know where to look and things like this. And, and this is what makes this kind of special in the sense that we do it for you. You don't have to worry about this. You know, you yeah. just do build and that, or ZigCC, and it just knows exactly where everything is. Either it ships it or it looks on the system if it's there. Nice. And then the second important bit, for so that's for the compiler. And then for the linker, library tabs. So these are called TBD files, stand for um, text-based definition files. Okay, so it's uh, not just like somebody was trying to name it and they were like, we'll name it to be determined and you know, <laughs> TBD for short and then no, later. No, no. Well, actually, so, I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Maybe that's the history, right? Maybe. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. So we need to ask. Maybe maybe somebody, maybe somebody from Apple is going to be listening in so they could tell us if that was actually the case or not. <laughs> yeah. but, so TBD is the output of the so-called TAPI. That's the text-based API. And basically what it is, so Apple had this, and I, actually I have to admit, this was a brilliant idea by Apple in that instead of uh, shipping actual binary files, so actual sh- dynamic libraries like uh, LibSystem or libc or something, with the CLT, you only ship like a summary file, a text-based file, with all the information that the linker is going to require to be able to correctly link a program oh. for macOS. And that, that's all you get. Honestly, it's just text. It, well, the format is YAML. Um, okay, it was brilliant except for YAML. I think YAML's, uh, it's not, it wasn't the best choice. It's actually very difficult to parse. It's got so many different, um, well, it's complicated. You know, YAML grammar, I was like, I was looking through it going like, oh my God. Hopefully, yeah. like, like, like thankfully, um, the thing that's generated by, by, by TAPI for dynamic libraries is actually machine generated. So, you know, there are no surprises. That's God. good, yeah. But if it's human written, then, you know, all bets are off like good luck well, you, you know about the famous uh the norway problem in in yaml i uh, no, i do not <laughs> okay oh, so no I, I think i wait i think maybe i do but but please 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 um well please so go. uh it's uh country codes like us is like you, you know, right like us and, and stuff like norway is no but no is interpreted as equivalent to false apparently yeah so you you get these bugs where you're trying to parse it as like a string and then it comes out as a boolean false. So, <laughs> yeah that's that's, yeah. that's awesome that's absolutely amazing <laughs> Yeah, so it's YAML, and this is except for frameworks. And it, it, like, if you want to do any serious development on Mac OS, I don't know, targeting um, the the actual OS, like not only the the the, the, the bare metal or the, the Libsy um, layer, but you actually want to use like um, I don't know the some of the APIs that Apple offers for apps. Uh-huh. You need to link against frameworks, and that's yet another thing that you download with Xcode or CLT. But it still is just headers plus stub files. No dynamic libraries anymore. Okay. Yeah, and, and that's it. I mean, these are the missing bits that you need if you want to do it. Oh, I'm sorry. You also need a compiler. 
there is no compiler well, by sure. default on a macOS, right? You need the CLT or Xcode to actually get it. And the same with the linker. And now you would probably ask, okay, you do the, you link against stat files, but what about the actual dynamic libraries? Where are they? Right? Because normally what you would have when you install them on, on, on Linux, they reside in the LD search path. And then the program interpreter, the LDSO, whatever it's called, is actually going to load your binary. And then it's going to also load the dynamic libraries that shared objects that are needed. To, to I mean, I, I would assume, well, so isn't that where that text-based definition file, it says where no. they are on the system? Oh, it no, doesn't. No, no, the text-based definition file is not executable. It's just a, a summary. Like a, It just tells you that the symbols are defined within that dilib. That's it. Okay. The actual dilib is pre-installed on macOS. Right. It's part of this infamous shadow partition that nobody has got access to. It's oh. a read-only shadow partition on macOS that's got all of the dilibs pre-installed as far as well as far as I understand. And then they are preloaded by the OS. Like actually they're already there at a fixed address. I can't remember what it was, but well fixed address. They 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 occupy like some segment within the the memory of the OS. And then it's so much faster to load because you don't have to load the dialibs anymore. The system dialibs they're already there. So you just basically just filling in the blanks like the the binding information and, and things like that. So that's very cool. Okay, so so you just rely on that and you're good as long as you know where that is. Oh, you don't even need to know that. All you need to because it's uh the the, the paths to actual dialibs, they're specified in the TBD file. So all you need is a TBD file, that's it. Right. Nice. Honestly, at runtime you don't care. So what about uh code signing? <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite topic. <laughs> yeah, code signing was a bit of a a roller coaster ride in the beginning. <laughs> it was something that nobody expected. So yeah, we didn't either. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody did. I remember this is the first time I was in touch with Apple folks. Um, we, we actually got some very good information from them uh, at the time, um, but also collaborating with Go folks. Yeah, because Go some, probably also has to run into this because yeah, they also we, do their we, own. We all did. Yeah. And that was back in 2021, I think, you know, when the first, um, when they, um, Ah, what was it called? The you know the dev kit, the Mac Mini that had a A17 in it, I think, not the M1 yet. Oh wow! So I had one, and 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 you know it was it was problematic because suddenly nothing worked. <laughs> it was right. This, this code signing that sorry, the kernel said like no code signature. Like I'm sorry, I'm not gonna run it. Because um, because on Intel Max the rule was you know code signing was like a warning or something like that, right? It, it would just give you this like, hey, this isn't yeah, signed. Yeah, you don't need it. That's correct. Um, yeah. You only need you always needed it though for um, uh, mobile devices, and that was way back. Like for iOS, you always needed right. code signature. So it's not that it wasn't something new, new, but I think not many. Oh, like not not many non Apple. Tool chains like Go, I guess, like Rock as well, like Zik, or actually Rock and Zik probably didn't even exist back then. But not many tool chains wanted to um, target Apple devices that are not uh, a computer, like not macOS. Right. Yeah. So nobody bothered, and then suddenly macOS requires this, and everybody goes like, "Oops." Um, <laughs> yeah. Because the code signing is not something that, I mean, like, it's not like Apple just provides you with an open source implementation of this. Like, of oh, hey, here's, here's some C code that you can use to sign your binaries. That's not a thing. No, it doesn't exist. And there are quirks. I can actually talk for hours about this. So there's no docs. That's the first thing. Like, um, when I was doing this, I was reading through different implementations by different people trying to work out different bits and pieces, how they fit together to understand what the heck. I yeah. was even looking through code sign source code that's actually released by Apple. The trick about CodeSign is that it relies on so many different libraries inside that are not part of the same repo, so to speak. So CodeSign uses CodeSign Allocate, but CodeSign Allocate is part of Lib security or something. So you have to look in there, or maybe it was something else. I can't remember. There's also Lib stuff. All of this stuff... Wait, uh, Lib stuff? There is Lib stuff. <laughs> Honestly, there is Lib stuff. Awesome. And Lib stuff is very important because it's got... It's got stuff. Yeah, I mean, but it's got that's... the thing that makes or breaks <laughs> um, your binary when it comes to Apple ecosystem in the sense that you can you can generate a binary that you can sign yourself and it's going to run fine. But if you want to re recode sign it with Apple tooling or you want to do something else with Apple tooling, you're going to get a big no. Why? Because there are certain unwritten rules 
that Apple has embedded within a certain tooling that's part of Lip stuff that verifies that the binary is behaving in a certain way. So uh-huh. for anybody interested, we have a test for this now in Zig. I implemented like a full binary dumping thing and I implemented like a testing harness to basically be able to uh, declaratively say like, I expect that this offset is gonna be aligned to 16 bytes or something like this. And all this stuff is required by Apple tooling. Seriously, there is no docs for this. I found this in basically looking through the open source um, implementation of libraries. And then I was working out like why I need all this stuff because the the errors that you will get from code sign allocate will be like uh, invalid macro or non, you know, failing strict verification. That's it. Not right, just where, says, not says no. How, yeah. It's just a fail. <laughs> nope, like, right. nope. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Try again. Exactly. Yeah. So... <laughs> So code signing, uh, it, it was a bit of a, a bit of a nightmare in the beginning, but when you yeah. get the, the basic thing done, you don't have to worry about this anymore. So, um, so you got we, something working that basically you're confident enough in that you're like, okay, we don't need to. Yeah. We battle tested that for what now? Two years. Nice. People have been using this and never had any problems at the same time roundabout, I think last year. April, I started a sub-project, which is called Signature. I, by the way, I suck at naming, so... so Signature is a great name. I- <laughs> uh, I'm not sure about that, but basically it's meant to uh, replace code sign for anybody who wants to use something that's not written by Apple. This one is written in Zig, and it's meant to offer the same... Uh, well, basically the same functionality, except that it's going to be more informative when it comes to, like, you know, failing strict verification or things like this. Or you actually don't need to conform to this because I can figure that out, but I don't have time to actually finish it. So I did some bits. I had a prototype um, that I managed to actually code sign with full certificates, like uh, I think it was like self-provisioning profile or something like this, and actually managed to write an app in Zig and launch it on iPhone and it worked. Cool. So it's possible. Um, it's just that, you know, as with everything, we need some time. I need some time to be able to sit down, do more reversing of where things go and then um, add that stuff in. Um, yeah. But nice. it's not all bad. It's not all bad. I mean, if Apple can do it, so can we, basically. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we, we, we know that it's always interesting to, you know, ask questions like, is it even feasible to do something like this? And the fact that, I mean, I, I don't know if this was an inspiration to you, but just like, from our perspective, knowing that you're doing it and knowing that Go has done it. I don't know if that was something from your perspective, be like, well, Go, obviously nobody on the Go team works at Apple. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. not, you know, I don't think Apple even uses Go unless they're like maybe doing some Kubernetes stuff now, but certainly not back when Go was created where, where they do anything. And yet Go will compile and Go also doesn't use LLVM. They will compile their own executable binaries from scratch entirely in the Go compiler and they're runnable on macOS, including on M1s. Exactly. So clearly it's possible. The yeah. question is how. <laughs> yeah, the more projects actually does that, the better for us, right? It's like, it's like I know that Rock is trying to do this Go as yeah. well. So, and as you-, as you said, like I knew that Go did it, or they were trying to do it. I was like, yeah, okay, we can definitely pull it off then. Have you looked at through the Go compiler source code to see like what they're doing when it comes to code signing? Not then, because at that point, uh, none of us knew how to do it. Oh, got so it. <laughs> I was actually we were discussing that stuff in issues trying to figure out how it works. And I think we arrived, like Go folks and us over at Zig arrived at the solution around the same time. So... Got it. Okay, so now there's probably two solutions in the wild because I believe the Go compiler is open source. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, it fully <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, you, can, you can have a look at this stuff. Um, what I did... Okay, so I did look into Go for different things. I looked into Delve, which is Go's debugger. Okay. And... I also looked at what's called the debug server in LVM. It's um, actually, I don't think it's being used anymore because the debug server is being offered as a dialib by macOS, by Apple. Um, but basically, the debug server is a bit of a gem. It's been written by an ex as far as I know, he's an ex Apple engineer. Mm-hmm. And it's basically showing you. It's it's massive, by the way. It's like it's got like a lot of low level stuff for macOS, but it's showing you exactly how to launch a process, suspend it, how to set up exception port, and then basically how to set everything up for debugging. 
Nice. And I did that because I needed something kind of like this, not exactly a debugger at that time, but I needed some kind of an idea. How the hell can I pull off hot code swapping on macOS? Yeah. So let's talk about that because that's a really cool <laughs> problem. Like, you know, a lot of hot code swapping, like, you know, where you make a change to your source file and the running program updates, a lot of that is just done in dynamic languages where you have an interpreter running at runtime. Mm -hmm. And so it can just be like, oh, I'll just interpret, you know, different source code or different byte code or something like that. Of course, the problem with that is that that puts a very low ceiling on how much performance is possible in that system. Yep. And, yep. and also it means that, you know, you can't, you can't really do it if any binaries are involved. But of course, Zig is all about compiling the binaries and not having an interpreter or any, any yeah, kind yeah. of virtual machine at runtime. So how do you do hot code loading at runtime when all you're doing is generating machine instructions, you, you don't have any kind of interpreter running at runtime. Uh, so I actually wrote two blog posts about this. So if anybody is interested in actual technical details, and I'm probably going to lie right now, or I'll misrepresent the things because it's been a while since I wrote this, <laughs> but it's on my website, which is like, you know, www.jacobconcat.com. But anyway, the idea is that hot, so hot code swapping for Zig, because we do in-place binary patching already, for the self-hosted native backends. It's on, yeah, on your hard drive. That's on the right? disk, but we still do like atomic updates. And because we do the atomic updates, we can do the same thing in memory. Like, well, you know, think about this, like on disk, we update offsets. All we need to do is update um, addresses. So calculate the address, you know, stick in new um, machine code, and then the only trick is if you don't have ASLR off, like the um, address space layout randomization. Thank you. Um, you need to do rebasing yourself because that's going to be post loading. So there's not not, not going to be anything that's going to actually update the addresses, um, like slide them for you. But you can do it. Like I did it. It's very easy to ask the kernel, hey, where was I loaded again? The, yeah. the kernel is going to give you the base address. You have the base address. You know exactly. So you do some subtraction. And there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's it. You just shift by that amount and, and you're good. But the trick, the, the main trick to hot code swapping, um, and this is like the bread and butter of the solution in Zig, is the fact that every single function call goes through a global offset table. Mm -hmm. We and okay. This uh, from the perspective of runtime performance, this is horrible. Yeah. Um, Linker, whenever it can, it optimizes that out. So if if the symbols are local or basically they are, are defined within the same linkage unit, so the final one, you will usually elide a call through God because yeah. uh, you know a call through God is like a double dereference. You have to dereference a pointer into God and then the reference that one again back out into where the symbol is so that's expensive we don't we actually we leave that in because yeah. and then what what happens is if we leave that in and we update a symbol let's say i don't know like print me we have a new implementation that's i don't know twice as long so we had to move it in memory check this out if we call it from main we still call the same pointer because it's a pointer in god all we do we update the pointer within god to point to the new symbol and that's it yeah that's that's very cool um, and I mean, it, it makes sense. Like it's, it's a, it's a very flexible system in terms of like, you know, you, you get the, it seems like sort of the, almost the bare minimum required to get, uh, what interpreters get where they can like, you know, update arbitrary code paths. Instead, you're like, well, every function goes through this, you know, pointer, one mm -hmm. level of pointer indirection, which means that we can just add in the new functionality to the running binary and then just change it so that now every time yeah, it's yeah. to be called to that. Almost, almost, because one of the things that has been pointed out to me and it's very true, I, 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 okay, to be honest, I didn't have time to investigate that yet because in order to start re like working on this again, I want, I need to advance one of the, or we need to advance one of the backends a bit further, like preferably so that it can, you know, we can build Zig with the native, like self-hosted native backends, right, so we can right. finally start thinking about how it's going to work. Um, but one of the things that have been pointed out to me is that what you're going to do if you are about to update function that you are executing. So obviously this run is not going to see a difference. Uh, and maybe it's fine, maybe not. I haven't put much thought into this. But I don't know, maybe if, if we call ourselves, but still, it's going to be the old version of the of the symbol. So supposedly, we're not going to overwrite it. But if we did, right? So let's say we're running the old version of the of the symbol, and then we provide an updated, but at the same time, we provide yet another one. 
and then we overwrite what we were executing in in the binary. Things can go really weird. Yeah, so you have a function that's in the middle of executing, and you're like, yeah. actually, I'm going to update this one so that now anybody who calls that is calling yeah, a, a new yeah. different so, one. Yeah, so but when we update that one, yeah, exactly. So if we overwrite it, we should probably have some kind of a lock or track it. It's possible to track it. I mean, if the buggers can do it, we can do it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I maybe it's fine. Maybe it's not. I'm not sure. I I need to investigate this. But this is a this is something that I need. Like, it's a good point, right? It's something that you should um, um, bear in mind when you're going to actually start working on this. And this is, I think. This is exactly what debuggers have to work with. And I actually, because I'm very curious about how debuggers work, I even started writing one, um, but I don't have time to finish off. Um, yeah. But I've been basically targeting macOS <laughs> again um, as my first thing. Probably That's probably a bad idea of because of how much you have to set up and there's no docs. But <laughs> as I said, LVM debug server is your best. Like, this is it. That's your golden, like that's your, um, what's it called? Like a, a silver bullet, is it? That That's the... That's your um, a golden ticket, like the debug server. This is your gold mine for macOS when it comes to debuggers. It's got everything you would want if you want to nice. write it from scratch. So definitely, at some point, we're going to want to do that in Rock. Uh, is to have our own debugger. Yeah, um, absolutely. We want that in SIG as well. So yeah, that's um, awesome. And it's you know it's good fun as well. It's a bit frustrating at times, but I think it's like I don't know. I mean, since I started working for uh, with with Andrew um, on the Zig project. And especially after working full time, I just, I, I really start enjoying reversing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really valuable because, uh, you know, like you said, there's not a lot of documentation out there. In some cases, no documentation for a lot of this stuff. And so, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, it's funny how much time goes into this. But really, I mean, I know I work this way and I assume that, you know, you're working this way as well. I'm always just sort of working backwards from the user experience I want. I'm like, okay, well, oh, I, you know, we want people absolutely. to just be able um, to yeah. run this and not have to run other programs and have it run really quickly. How do we get there? <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah. and um, it turns out that the way that we get there is is actually this incredible, you know, journey through the mountains and through a swamp and there's fire and, you know, <laughs> dragons. And um, But then at the end of the day, it's, it's all in the service of when the user runs it, it's like, oh, it just worked. Nice. Okay, yeah, moving on. Yeah. Now, and now I can just continue with my life with what I was trying to actually do. And I'm pretty sure you're going to share the sentiment. And, and perhaps for anybody who's listening who struggles with this idea of reverse engineering things. And, and I was one, I was like this as well in the past. Honestly, in the beginning, it, it really feels hopeless. Like <laughs> when I touch something new, like uh, I had this most recently, I had this with uh, PDB and CodeView and basically debugging information on on Microsoft Windows. No doc, there 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 are no docs. There is only some open sourced code that's very old. Well, very old, maybe not that old, but it's been released like recently, but it's old by Microsoft. Yeah. And there is LVM that's got some documentation, but not a lot, and that's it. Seriously, yeah. this is it, right? This is it. It's like you're saying Apple is bad, but there we go. And it felt hopeless, like, but slowly, like if you spend enough time on something that feels hopeless, I guarantee that after, I don't know, like a couple of days, maybe a week, you're going to start seeing this, like maybe not super strong, but like, like some kind of a light in the tunnel, like at the end of it, that maybe <laughs> like, glimmer okay, of hope. maybe not everything is that bad. And if you keep working on it, it's I'm I'm sure you're gonna get somewhere. So nice. Yeah, it's and it's with everything. Like right now, I'm working on a disassembling an encoding library for x86 64 ISA. Okay. And it's overwhelming. Like the the amount of um, encodings that are possible is like stupid. I'm sorry. It's like it's it's like it's so big. It's like humongous, right? It's like who the thought that you would have so many encodings i was like what well i guess and, that's just that's just legacy accumulation right it's like yeah, uh, but why know. it's like but then i have to <laughs> like we have to support all this stuff yeah and yeah. then you know as is and if you want something like yeah go, you know have a stab at this it's super overwhelming and it's like this tedious job because actually it's not even working on like cool algorithms it's just reading a manual that's like a, a thousand pages long or something and then trying trying to understand how it exactly works and guess what you don't really have much way of testing this right unless you have the actual hardware because nobody right. makes em emulators right, exactly. for it but yeah then even if you do you still have to like basically write assembly by hand and see hey is it going to work and then 
for you to do that, you should probably write more of a function to be able to then verify that, you know, something you want to do, like, I don't know, I call a, a ellipsis symbol, like a printf or something. It actually takes a lot of effort to do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you'd have to, you'd have to write your own emulator and then trust that your own emulator works. How do you test the emulator <laughs> if you don't exactly. have the real hardware? So, yeah. and, and, you know, different levels, right? So in the, in the beginning, you can just test that actually encoding looks okay. Then if it does, then you start may, maybe even running on the hardware. And then this is where the fun begins, having like Heisenbergs, you know, miscompilation. Yeah, right. like suddenly, you're, uh, you know, it goes on pretty well, and then you add a new function, and everything goes to you know, the, the, the blows up. Why? Yeah. What's happening? Suddenly, you know, you're overwriting your return address, and you end up somewhere you shouldn't, and you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, I, hey, I mean, I'm I'm glad that uh, you're out there, sort of, uh, you know doing the hard work so that uh people can have a good user experience with zig and also i i've appreciated you know learning from your expertise you know we, we all have on, on rock like oh, thank you, you know, yeah it's it's great that you're not only doing all this hard work but also sharing the knowledge that you've gained along the way with oh, others absolutely. so absolutely. really appreciate it thank you and on that topic I'm, I'm actually trying to um run a workshop on on basic linking as well nice in, in vancouver june this year so if anybody's going to be in the area that's software you can love in Vancouver, Canada. And this is going to be the first time I'm running a workshop. And many people said that, wow, that's very brave, you know, doing a workshop on linkers. But I was like, yeah, well, where I you, you build your own linker in the out. workshop, right? It's like, it's yeah, like, yeah, uh, we're going to build a linker, like a very simple one. Like, we're not going to go of course, yeah. through all, all of it because it's impossible. But within four hours, I hope that we're going to have something that can link static binaries on, on Linux. So it's like um, a, it's like a hello world of linkers, so exactly, to speak. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I want to show everybody that things that may appear as well scary to others, like seg faults, are uh, like a godsend for linker writers because that's your natural stopping point, and it's beautiful. It's absolutely if you get a seg fault when you link, it's absolutely beautiful because you know exactly where everything went wrong and you can backtrace. If you don't, <laughs> it runs and sometimes crashes. Then okay, that's. That's, that's, that's worse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Hey, that's, it's cool that you're hopefully going to be able to bring some other people to, to a higher level in terms of their understanding of low level stuff. Yeah, I hope so. Cause it's honestly, it's not that scary. Once you do it once, I think it starts making more sense. It starts making more sense. So yeah, it's maybe it's more intimidating than it needs to be. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it is. It's, you know, it's like this advanced calculus class or I don't know if anybody did any higher maths, like functional analysis, you, you sit in in the first class and you know he's talking about like i don't know linear operators and suddenly like uh, the, the size of an operator like an operator being a function that maps from a vector to a vector has got size and you're like what oh I'm sorry, actually so I have a size you know i was lost when you started talking about that i i didn't understand a word you just said uh, <laughs> <laughs> i'm very well I, I took calculus like a million years ago and that's and i never used any of it so it's all it's all gone and i never even got to that level <laughs> it but it's good fun it's just that you know you just got you have to get through the first hurdle and then i promise you from then on if you get through it it becomes fun, like maybe not easy, but it becomes easier to do so. Nice. Well, that's an inspirational message. And hopefully some people listening to this will, uh, will A, check out your workshop, Software You Can Love Vancouver. And if not, read your blog posts or, and if not, at least feel less intimidated on getting into some of this really low level stuff. Definitely. Yeah, that would be, that'd be awesome. I mean, you know, the more people actually start doing systems programming, the better for, for all of us. So. Awesome. Well, Jacob, thank you so much for taking the time. This was really fun. I, I learned thank some you. things and, uh, yeah. and it was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. 